they just Morse code the their order to the to the nearby town. Like beep 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 beep. We need more peppermint sticks. Beep beep beep. <laughs> that's how that's how Morse code works. Sure. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan, and this is David. And today I finally watched The Hateful Eight. So I'll admit. All right, I'll be the first one to admit. When I saw this in theaters, it was just after I saw like Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained in theaters. And then I also watched like during that time a bunch of Quentin's old movies. So when I was finally like sitting down in the theater, ready to watch The Hateful Eight, I was massively disappointed and massively bored i don't know why because watching it now in the comfort of my own home um i thought it was very well paced i thought it was like the dialogue was great but there was one moment and we'll get to it when we get to it that i did feel like it dragged a bit however i don't know if i was just used to how black dinguses (laughs) No, I thought that was incredibly well paced. No, um, I, I, uh, I, I guess I was just expecting something more like Django, you know, kind of a Western centered around like a couple of dudes. But, um, yeah, it's not like that. It's obviously not like that. It's something very different. Um, and watching it again. Uh, I actually really liked it. Um, it's definitely higher up on my list now. Yeah, so I, I this just like passed me by. I don't really understand what happened. And then when right before the pandemic, I made a list of a bunch of movies I was going to watch when my wife went out of town. I think I've said this several times. I think this is the last one on the list. And we decided pretty soon after to start the podcast. And so I've been holding off because I wanted to do it because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie and you and I have like mostly watched all of his other ones that normal people would talk about on a podcast. So instead we did Four Rooms and Death Proof. Sure, sure. Um, But I like, so the first time I watched, I've watched this twice in the last week to prepare for this. And the first time I will say, I was somewhat like, okay, this beginning, man, like let's, let's keep it moving. Uh, The first I guess the first two chapters when they're in the carriage on the way to the the haberdashery. And but when I watched it again, I realized I was like, oh, those actually those scenes are not long at all. I think those first two were like maybe 30, 45 minutes and then like three and four or like an hour and a half or something, I feel like. That's and then just the, uh, that's about how it cut. Yeah. And then five and six are pretty, I think five and six are like the last 40 minutes. So my math clearly doesn't work on any of that, but it is. The movie was three and a half hours long. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it is really well paced. And it, once again, like a lot of his movies, the more you watch them, the better they get. Um, And so I just noticed a lot more like uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is so much better upon second watch to me. Yeah. Uh, I all, I kind of was like, and this is obviously our justified bias, but I was like, is Walton Goggins just fucking 
playing what Walton Goggins plays in it, you know, but like he's actually great in this, like a lot of like <laughs> subtlety and it's definitely a different character, although both racist. Um, but there's just so much I liked about it the second time. And I liked it the first time too. Um, and this definitely feels, you know, it's one of his more violent ones too. Um, and also your, your, your Django thing, this was actually like originally supposed to be like a Django sequel that then he was like, Oh, that doesn't really work. And then he was like, but it's kind of in the same universe. But then he didn't want the audience to feel like cheated if they thought it was Django related. So he kind of kept his mouth shut about like thinking that it was, you know, the same universe, whatever. So, I mean, I obviously get that feel. It's like the same time period, basically. Um, just like, but a lot different, but still pretty fucking violent. It's dealing with a lot of like the racial issues from Django. Um, so... But yeah, it it is really good. I don't, I, you know, I told you I wanted to do like a Quentin Tarantino ranking at the end of this. I didn't prepare anything, but I can do it off the top if we end up doing it. But it's like he has so many great movies. I don't know where I would put this, but it's still like fucking great. You know, this kind of makes me want to rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I definitely didn't give this um, give that movie. Uh, I think the ask accolades that it deserves. So I need to give that a second chance. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we watched this one. I'm glad you held off actually, because even though for the, like the first 30, 40 minutes in the coach, like you said, um, it just kind of dragged a, a bit. Um, it's a lot of setup for what happens uh, later on in the film. Because at that point, we don't really have a plot. You know, we just need... We know that Jeff Bridges... Jeff Bridges? <laughs> Kurt, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to live this one down. Uh, Kurt Russell uh, has to get from point A to point B with uh, his captive. and uh, But other than that, we don't really know what's, gonna, what's going on. And uh, so once we get to the haberdashery, we kind of start getting an idea of like what's going down. Fun game for you, because of course I've seen this, so I knew how it was going to end. Did you think it was all of them, one of them, or two of them? Um, I didn't think it was all of them. I was trying to figure out who it was, and I was like... I was like, Bob is so obvious, but then he knows uh, what kind of smoke, sh sh you know, that she does cigarettes instead, uh, rolls her own tobacco instead of does a pipe. Um, so I was like, that's kind of a, a red herring. And then I knew Bob didn't, uh, you know, they made it obvious that Bob didn't poison the coffee. But then I was like, because we know for sure he didn't poison the coffee, uh, he's probably in on it. And I was like, Tim Roth is probably the one you suspect the least because he's got this job, this you know reputable profession of, of hanging people. But I was like, but that probably means he is it. Then fucking Michael Madsen is never, he's never not a bad guy. So like, he's got to be it. So in the end, it's fairly obvious um, <laughs> that it's, that all, it's all of That it's all of them. <laughs> right. Uh, especially the jumping a little bit ahead scene five when they all walk out of the carriage and then they all are standing there four in a row 
uh, like I think uh, Minnie like introduces like looks at all of them as they take off their hats, and that's like very reminiscent of the scene in Kill Bill when the four like you know Michael Madsen, Lucy Liu, and Vivica Fox, and um, yeah, the um, Daryl Hannah are all standing there outside the church, ready to go kill um, Beatrix. <laughs> Made it through, but you know it's like very reminiscent of that. So like it all makes sense when you get to that point. Um, but yeah, I never suspected all of them, which is why it's like so kind of perfectly done. And and I'll you know we can get to how it's done as we get to it. But yeah, I never, never would have guessed everybody. Yeah, I thought they made um, Michael. Um, I'm just gonna call him Joe Gage because that's a much funner name to say. I thought they made him too obvious, right? Like. Um, Walter Goggins really wants to kill him. And I was like, he's probably the most innocent one. Um, First time watching this. And yeah, I think it's a great reveal that it's all three, except uh, Bruce Dern, who is the only one who was originally there in the beginning. Right. Um, Right. I love the hints throughout the film that something's wrong, that only Samuel L. Jackson realizes something's wrong, like the jelly bean on the ground, like the one jelly bean on the ground that they miss cleaning up, and like how... Um, well, then he looks up at the jar, right? The jar's missing, and, yeah. Yeah, the jar's missing, but I, we can do... I'll talk about it real quick, but before we jump back to the beginning, the other thing is he walks in the door, and he's already had this long conversation with Bob about uh how he you know he doesn't really trust bob and he gives us more information about that later but as soon as he walks in the door and after he's done holding the door for bob to nail it in he looks around and his face just immediately changes and he's like this situation's fucked like this is not something so you you think he knew about the situation the whole time and he was just kind of like being wary of it because the patience for both parties um channing tatum's and him it was just they were both in it for the long haul did you notice i I read something i didn't notice that jennifer jason lee daisy like she kept stepping in between tim roth and kurt russell because tim roth was like gonna shoot him very quickly and daisy was kind of preventing him from doing that because she knew about the other guys outside and if they shot him this early you know there just would have been a shootout with the other guys and so she was like kind of protecting them almost like i never noticed that her moving in the way but like i read about it and so i need to go back and watch it again that's kind of cool um but i have a thought that would debunk that in chapter five, when they are setting up the haberdashery, um, like it, it shows the whole Channing Tatum gang getting ready to, you know, have them come in. You can clearly hear all the parties on the other side of the door and all of them inside react to what they were saying. And you could hear um samuel jackson and um goggins and like you can hear them interact with uh what's his name obi yeah obi um not obi but ob <laughs> o b 
uh, yeah, you can hear them uh, at, um, talking with Bob and stuff. So they knew that they knew there was more. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although maybe it's just us hearing it, not them hearing it. But uh, let's get let's get started. So um, did you notice OB is the young sheriff from Death Proof and Kill Bill? No, <laughs> yeah. I did not. <laughs> he's he looks a little uh, quite a bit older in this, but yeah, that's him. There's not much that happens in this in this first chapter, but you know, you meet Kurt Russell and then you meet Samuel Jackson. Well, one thing that kind of went against my expectations, although I guess I should have known because he's the main person on the cover, but I expected this to be Kurt Russell's movie. You know, this is very much like an homage to the thing. And so obviously I expected Kurt Russell to have the central role, which he does for the first three chapters. He's, you know, mostly center, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize how big of a part Samuel Jackson was. And basically the he is the lead. Or Goggins. Yeah, Goggins steals the show. Yeah, you know, like you said, the, the first two chapters were kind of quick in succession of like the beginning 40 minutes of the movie. And, you know, it's kind of when they pick up Samuel Jackson is chapter one and then pick up Goggins is chapter two. But in chapter one, I think the dialogue between um, Russell and Jackson is really great. And how he just keeps socking. Um, uh, what's her name? What's the actress's Daisy. name? Daisy. Je- oh. Jennifer Jason Lee plays Daisy. Okay. I'll just call her Daisy. Um, the way he keeps socking Daisy in the <laughs> in the uh, face um, is great. And then... Like the whole talk about the Lincoln letter and how like that pays off throughout the whole movie, especially to the end, I think it's just great setup. Um, but then, like you said, things really kick off once we get actually get to the haberdashery. Yeah, and one, one thing I will say is a couple like thoughts I had, especially the second watch, is how many bounties do you think Kurt Russell has had stolen from him that he's this sketchy of people, right? Because yeah. Samuel Jackson has $8,000 worth of bounties over there, and this is ten. There's not much difference between those two. Uh, although, in today's numbers, that's like over two hundred grand or something crazy like that. So, it's like he has to have had these run-ins in the past where he's dealt with people like stealing his bounties, right? Yeah, I mean, we learn later on in the movie that he could have um, just killed her, killed Daisy, because her bounty is good. It's as good whether she's dead or alive, but um, it. We also learn later on he's called the hangman because um, the bounties that he does catch, he makes sure that they see justified justice or you know whatever, not not frontier justice, um, and so it's kind of these conflicting personality traits within him that makes his journey so difficult. Well, it's actually just, so all that's established in this first chapter, but it's actually just good writing, right? Because as any other hangman would have just, or any other bounty hunter would have just killed her, and then we don't have a movie. And so you need that that established that he never kills anybody. He always brings them in alive um, for for the movie to even work. I guess what I'm saying is that the movie could also work if her bounty was just good her being alive. See what I'm saying? I guess, but, but, you know, 
Dead or Alive is always... (laughs) More dramatic? Yeah. Um, The other thing I noticed in the in the second time watching this is like how good Jennifer Jason Lee is in this opening, like her, because she's not doing a ton of talking. Um, but this, you know, she does have a few lines that are great. And then her just reactions are so good. The way after she gets hit by Kurt Russell and like the look she gives, um, Samuel she Jackson licks the blood off of her, like upper lip. Yeah. And then, like, she's got this smile, and then she just kind of looks this, like, contemplative look outside. Like, you know, she knows what she's about to deal with uh, coming up. Um, The the last thing, too, is, and just I noticed this on second watch, is when Kurt Russell asks about the Lincoln letter, Samuel Jackson's, like, initial look is this, like, what? Oh, oh, yeah, that thing. Not, like, the reaction of someone who has a real Lincoln letter and, like, is, like, loves to talk about it or whatever. It's, like... Oh, that yeah, that lie that I tell everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, I got, I got that. <laughs> I- yeah, well, what's funny about that is that even all the way to where he admits that it was a lie is a giant ruse. Um, you still don't know. I mean, I wasn't quite sure if it is or if he just told that so that it it wouldn't be something someone would want to steal. You know. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, I believed him when he said it was a lie. I will say, though, the fact that when she spits on it, he, like, hits the shit out of her and <laughs> takes Kurt Russell with her outside of the cat, <laughs> like, uh, the stagecoach. Pretty fucking funny. Like, I think his reaction in that, you know, in the first watch, you think is because, oh, this is a real letter. In the second watch, it's because, as he explains how tough it is being a black man at this time in Wyoming, he's like, that letter does so much for him. And, you know, if you ruin it, I guess he can just say, oh, I found another one. But, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, it, it buys him a lot. Yeah. So I, I also like how we're kind of double bluffed in, in as the audience, I guess. Because then we have, in the next chapter, Goggins coming in as this, like, stereotypical hillbilly racist... Um, ex-soldier confederate soldier right um and then you know kurt russell is suspicious because he's like it's weird that two people would be wanting to hitch a ride with him so we think like maybe this is the setup and then we're in the haberdashery and we're like okay this is the setup it's like you know and i like it because we become almost as paranoid as kurt russell by the end of it you know um yeah but it does not look good for goggins like everything that we are told from uh kurt russell's point of view about what he knows about this guy it's like yeah he's definitely lying you know yeah absolutely he's goggins is so fucking great in the scene like in justified it seemed like he got all the great lines and in this it seems like he got most of the great lines too and, you know, he's trying to get on the stagecoach and Kurt Russell is, uh, I don't, you know, I find that hard to believe you're made the sheriff. And he's like, I'm supposed to freeze to death because you find something hard to believe. Yeah. Such a fucking great line. And then the ain't love grand one lane make snow angels together. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite line is, uh, you know, after, you know, he does all of this like defending of the Confederacy, which goes on a long time. And it's like, 
it's funny that you're then able to make him like a sympathetic good character in the end with how much defending he does of you know the lost cause um and he talks about like all the people that samuel jackson killed in that prison he killed 43 rebel soldiers but then 37 yankees too um but then jackson puts the gun up his nose basically and he's like you got me talking politics i'm just gonna scoot over on this window right here <laughs> yeah he's like he's like i didn't wanna <laughs> right yeah uh, he plays such a such he always plays such a good character um i think the only time he was improperly used was in ant-man and the wasp i think he should have been like a main villain but that's neither here nor there um when he is in the last scene of the movie speaking of good lines from him i love uh samuel jackson i know i'm skipping way ahead but who cares samuel jackson is like you're gonna take her deal and he turns over his shoulder and he's like I ain't taking no deal. We just talking. And then at the end, he's like, no deal, bitch. <laughs> well, I actually like when he's like, you know, since she has nothing to offer us, you know, let me just hear her sales pitch. <laughs> uh, um, so, so good. The other thing is that you know, the last thing that's like established in this chapter that kind of pays off later is they talk about the bounty on Samuel Jackson's head. And he's like, it was 30,000. And he's like, well, and the way Goggins, like, he's he's given so much of, the, like, this QT dialogue um, that he does well with. But he's like, well, you know, it wasn't always 30. You know, at the height, it was 30, and then it went down to 10. And then now it's probably only, like, 5. And he's like, but I'm sure you still got boys coming up to Wyoming, you know, doing headhunting to try and get you. And he's like, yeah, they try. <laughs> Which sets up, like, a key part of the story later. Um, and then, you know, then we now get to chapter three when we're actually at the haberdashery. Yeah. And now <clears throat> me knowing that, uh, shit's going to go down. I myself even forgot that Tim Roth was in on it. I was like, yeah, I know the other two, you know, for sure. But the way Tim Roth comes across in this reminded me is if his four rooms character just grew up because his like. He talks in the in a lot of the same way Ted talked in the in the movie um, with his like little like, uh huh. Yeah. You know, like those sort of dialects. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's why this is such like a great whodunit, because, you know, you have. You know, Quentin Tarantino's writing is so good, right? And so he he does things very purposefully. And so when you have Michael Madsen, you're like, oh, he's a bad guy. But that's too obvious. Oh, Tim Roth, he's probably a good guy because he always plays, you know, a pretty decent character. Or, you know, he plays the kind of the bad guy in in Pulp Fiction, but not really. It's like a side bad guy that you kind of are like, you know, have some feelings about whatever. But so he's probably a good guy. Oh, wait, but that's the trick, right? And then it's like Bob is so obviously the bad guy, but then he knew about the cigarettes. So it's just like so perfectly written that, yeah, I had like no clue. Yeah, um, and then we're, as we're shown in Chapter 5, they're all not just bad guys, but, like, really bad motherfuckers. Um, yeah, yeah, Chapter so. 5 is, like, a little hard to watch the first time, even though you know it's happening. Like, you know they have to. It's, like, it's tough. Right, right. I love how Samuel L. Jackson figures it out with, like, who made the stew, and uh, um, did you notice how when Samuel L. Jackson was trying to help... 
well, was offering his help to Bob in the stables. And he's like, no, go ahead and get warm. And then um, he's like, you don't like suspiciously, you don't want help in the stable in the blizzard. And then Bob was like, oh, yeah, that wouldn't make sense if I didn't ask for your help. Yeah, sure. Help out. Right. What was it? He was afraid that Samuel Jackson was going to find out about how many horses was currently in the stable or like, what did you think that was? Well, they need to feed and water the horses, I guess. So all the bodies were dumped in the well. Maybe that's it. But yeah, I couldn't. When you watch it again, you're like, well, there's nothing incriminating in the stable. None of the deaths happened there. That's where the bodies weren't dumped there. You already know that the other thing was there. So yeah, I don't know why that in particular he was telling him to go in. Um, That's a little weird. Even for I, li- I like how quickly he... Like, Bob realized how suspicious that is, so. <laughs> right. And the, the other thing is, you know, and I was talking earlier about, oh, with um, Tim Roth trying to shoot Kurt Russell very quickly, and I was like, oh, man, there's so many chances for him to take him out quickly. But when you watch it again, you know, Jody, played by Channing Tatum, is like, you guys have to practice patience, because if you choose the wrong moment you're gonna get my sister killed and you know like jody's the leader you're not you don't want to fuck around so even though there seems to be these so many chances it's like it has to be the perfect chance and you have two days so don't just do it early because you're getting antsy right right and um the entire time you you knew nothing about this movie like you didn't know channing tan was under the floorboards this entire time right i so uh, our friend Garrett, who's been on the podcast, uh, just mentioned that Channing Tatum was in this. And I was like, I haven't seen it. I didn't know that. And he's like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. And then I started the movie and Channing Tatum's in the credits. And I was like, uh, I texted him immediately. I was like, hey, so you didn't know anything because it's in the credits. I would have seen it anyway. He's like, oh, okay, great. And then obviously this movie's like close to three hours. And, you know, I have two kids. So I watched it over two days. And by the time I got to Channing Tatum, I forgot that he was in the movie. And I was like, oh, okay, there we go. Like, it, I hadn't even been thinking about it. So, I mean, not not even like, even if you didn't know it was him, who? how are you supposed to know anyone was under the floorboards, right? Um, yeah, like I mean, he, he could have he, he just he come been the later. Sh- the sheriff who, yeah, who, who knows, right? And so um, the entire time I'm watching this again, I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, now's a good time to shoot Kurt Russell from the floorboards. Oh, now's a good time to shoot him. Or now's a good time to shoot him. Like, especially when he uncuffs himself from Daisy and then, like, tells her to play the guitar. I thought a smart thing would have been she asked to go play the guitar so that he knew where she was in relevancy to where everyone else was. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's not that's not the way it went down. Yeah, and I have some questions about him shooting through the floorboard for later, but we'll get to that. I, I noticed a couple things. Actually, I just thought about right now. When Kurt Russell gets in there, he's like, "Oh, this coffee is shit." And you remember Zoe Bell was going up to Minnie, and she was like, "You need to make the coffee." And she's like, "I'll get to it. You know, I'll get to it. Whatever." And I think she ends up making it, but it's like it wasn't fresh when all the guys got there. Kurt Russell's like, this is shit because Minnie's been dead for four hours and that coffee was just sitting there and 
uh, Bob is not actually supposed to be in charge of this. He's just pretending. And then also Kurt Russell's asking where everything is. And it's like, you've been here plenty of times. Why are you like, you should know where everything is. Um, and then also Jennifer Jason Lee, I think in the first, in the first time watching this, I was looking at her for clues and she gives no indication of knowing these guys. Right. Or at least knowing any specific one. But one thing is she does blurt out no provocation whatsoever. Oh, the sheriff of Red Rock is outside. <laughs> To warn them that, like, hey, there's other people coming that you have to be worried about, you know? Yeah, I didn't notice that either. But, but yeah, that makes sense. Um, I wonder, like, was he, here's the thing. Was she... Okay, now your questions that you just thought of are bringing questions to me that I'm just thinking of uh, right now, too. One, if Jody's crew, gang, whatever you want to call it, um, is like 15 plus guys would she know all of them well or are these just the three guys that her brother decided to take along with him so it's they're random second question is did she know this escape attempt was happening so was she surprised to see them in the first place or did she already know like oh these people are there waiting for me i think she knows these people for sure um I think she you know, I think she can remember 19 names or 18 names how many ever that math would work out to of, of the gang if they're that many. I'm uh, a little ambivalent whether these other 15 people exist. Yeah. Um I don't it doesn't really matter whether she knew or not about the escape. It seems like she, well if you buy the 15 other guys then she didn't know about the escape because she explained all that plan. All of that entire part of the plan, right? If right. those 15 other guys don't exist, then she probably didn't know about the plan because how did they tell her about it, right? How was she, you know, she's been with Kurt Russell this whole time, so how did she know? She probably just assumed that she, they were going to try and break her out. But So yeah, I guess it just really hinges on whether those 15 other guys, because I would say no, how would she know? But if she knew about the sacking of the town and all that, then she would know. I unless yeah like you said unless the 15 guys sacking the town is a bluff and when she mentioned it Joe Gage was like oh yeah 15 guys and then later on she's like how many guys and he's like 15 killers and it could have been like this thing that they just kind of fed off each other right then and there or it could have been a real thing uh the reason I asked if she knew if the plan was you know coming together is that and if she knew those guys specifically, one, was she surprised when she got in there and she didn't see her brother? And two, was she surprised she got in there and she saw them if she knew them and she didn't know the thing was happening? Because like you said, if any of those things were true, she didn't give any of that away. Right. Now, do you think Michael Madsen is the type of person to visit his mom on Christmas? I think that's a loaded question. I think he is, but he's not the type to just write an autobiography about himself. I don't think he can write or read. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I thought that 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 character definitely plays on like what you think about you know all the characters that that guy plays, right? Because he's got a specific type that he does. Um, and then you know you have Oswaldo is doing a great job. Like when I watched it the second time, I was like I couldn't remember. Did he kill the hangman or did he like 
is he actually a hangman who's just also a bad guy? But then they do kind of like make it clear that he must have killed the hangman and he's not really the hangman. And then when his accent changes at one point, it goes from like, I don't know British accents, but it sounds a little more posh to a little more cockney. Um, <laughs> then you know, like, okay, this is not, this is not uh, the hangman, right? Um, but he he goes to great lengths to kind of ease uh, Kurt Russell's mind by talking about like you know how serious he takes his job and like that like you know hanging someone when all these factors are met such as like you're tried and the you know everyone wants it to happen and like I'm the one that does it then that's justice but if they just did it out on the you know on the road that's not necessarily justice so like all that you know is is set up pretty well what i find funny and you only notice on second watch is kurt russell goes up to the general and the general's like you are a hyena and I have no wish to talk to you and you're like that's fucking weird but then when you see when you get later on Channing tatum's like do not fucking talk to kurt russell just don't say a word to him like or we'll kill you so he's like i do not want to talk to you sir um did you also feel like Tim Roth was doing his best Christoph Waltz like lookalike contest in this? You know, it's funny is there was a rumor that Christoph Waltz was going to get this part, but it was always supposed to go to Tim Roth. And then Quentin Tarantino like offered Waltz to put him in the movie, which I don't even know what part he could have given him. Um, and Waltz was just like, nah, there's no need for that. Um, Christoph Waltz would have been good in that part, but you, Tim Roth has, the, like, Christoph Waltz, even though, you know, he plays obviously a, a Nazi in the first movie with Quentin Tarantino, and, like, that's a fucking horrible person, but then he plays a, a good person in the second one, but it's just that first role overshadows him so much that if you see him in this role, you're like, he's one of the fucking bad guys. I guess. I, I think both of those roles are so strong that they kind of cancel each other out i mean he's so he's such an endearing character in Django unchained that i um, he almost gets Django and his wife killed though because he won't do a handshake at the end no but what's funny is that like i'm not saying candy monsieur candy is as bad as um christoph waltz character in in inglorious but like Actually, you know what? I will. I will say they are equally just as bad as each other. That's probably the appropriate. That's the appropriate take. Thank you for saving yourself there. Well, I was thinking, I was like, nothing's worse than a Nazi. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, his character literally <laughs> would be equal to as being as worse as a Nazi. Um, I just wasn't using my critical brain. Um, how, however, since he, since Christoph Waltz in Django killed what would have been an equivalent to his villain in inglorious bastards i think that's why it's just made up for he could be either or to me but you're saying his his nazi uh character was way more evil right that's a bingo that's a bingo okay um we're getting back to this i do love the stable part with samuel jackson and and uh, Bob, when he tries to trick him with the cigarettes, and then he asks him some other question, he's like, it, are you calling me a liar? And he's like, it does sound like that, but I haven't yet. And this whole time, though, he knows he's a liar, right? Because yeah. he's Mexican. And he goes through that whole thing later with, about, about Minnie, which I'll just say now, 
I was very confused as to why a white lady that owned a haberdashery didn't like Mexicans but was okay with black people. <laughs> I was very confused. I was like, why would your racism extend to only Mexican people? And then when she, like, I was like, okay, I got, yeah, it was just, it was odd. It was odd to me. That's all I'll say about that. I was confused. I, yeah, I, don't worry. I thought Minnie was white too the first time I watched this. Well, apparently there's this unspoken part about how, um, and I guess better left alone, especially, you know, talking about it now, but like Sweet Dave actually was probably her slave owner. Oh. And he like freed her and then either married her or freed her and then like helped her get the money to buy this haberdashery and then just stayed with her. Um, uh, but that was left out at least as part as like the official Hateful Eight canon, I guess. Um, it's Manics, uh, it's sorry, you go ahead. I was, yeah, I was just gonna say real quick, it's crazy to think that Bob got all the information he needed with only being around her and like basically eavesdropping on one conversation uh for such a you know for for the long haul fake story he like conjured up well yeah except he really only got the the tobacco thing and that's the only thing that saved him in the like the very beginning right but like the rest of it you know the chair being covered up and then he's like Minnie would never leave this place and then the fact that he's mexican um or at least plain a mexican um it really gave it away. I also forgot how the door got broke. The for, when I was watching it the second time, I was like, "How did this door get broke?" And then, like, you see, you know, when chapter five hits, how that happened. Um, but what I was going to say a second ago was Walton Goggins, you know, who plays Mannix, just acts like a fanboy when he finds this Confederate general to talk to. He's like just all over him. Uh, played by the one and only Bruce Dern. Correct. Who I have met in real life. Yeah, you said he's not a nice guy. Uh, he's... Sh- okay, whoa, 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 wait. I He's one of those high maintenance... No, he... Yeah, okay. I just... He's very, very uh, specific about how he likes his Coca-Cola, okay? Oh, well, then that's just... That's normal, so... Yeah, never mind. Take it back. Um... <laughs> But yeah, you talked about, uh, first of all, Samuel Jackson brings up like the no hats rule and uh, Bob's like, well, we'll just, we'll let it go today. Um, and it's then a really good Bob this, impression. It does. Like I, I got a little throaty there for a second. I was like, uh, don't go too you far into, now you can't go too far into caricature. So, um, <laughs> but then Samuel Jackson kicks the single jelly bean, sees the jars missing, which are things that like. I noticed the first time, but they leave your mind, right? And, like, you just start paying attention to more. Because especially in, like, a Quentin Tarantino movie, there's so much to look at in this. And, like, also <sighs> seeing it, just seeing a haberdashery was kind of cool, right? Like, the fucking, like, the, the little, like, candy sticks and the jelly beans and, like, the one lady's, like, skin and a chicken. There's one bed in the middle of the room. So, I guess, like, it's so, it was such an odd thing to me, but it was cool to see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed that. Uh, the the thing that I think what would have been confusing for me to keep up with it, and what was confusing for me to keep up with it, is not just the things you see, like the jelly bean and the missing candy jar, and you know all the shit within a haberdashery, 
but it's everything that's mentioned in a Quentin Tarantino film that you, being a Quentin Tarantino connoisseur, wants to think that that's a thing that he wants the audience to remember, but he gives you so much that it's hard to keep up. So it's not just the visual stuff, but it's everything that's being fed to you through dialogue. Like, um, uh, oh, the coffee not being good. Or like, he's like, oh, is the, is, does Minnie still serve food? And he's like, if you mean by food, you mean stew, then yeah. Then it's just like all this stuff that you're like, this is definitely gonna come up. But then you're fed like 15 more things and you forget about the mention of the coffee until it's brought up again, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, we've watched so many Quentin movies and I think we even found it hard to keep up with everything. What do you think the margins are on a haberdashery, you know? Like, do you think they also are just kind of a little self-sufficient? Like they got their own chickens and maybe they grow some plants too or... Hard to grow get plants the... in that fucking climate, but sure. How do you uh, how do you get those candy sticks too and jelly beans? I guess there's like a cart that goes around. Like yeah. we're out of we're out of red until spring. Sorry, <laughs> we got orange and purple. They just Morse code the their order to the to the nearby town. Like beep 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 beep. We need more peppermint sticks. Beep beep beep. <laughs> That's how that's how Morse code works. Sure. The conversation between Bruce Dern and Samuel Jackson, where Mannix is the go-between, is fucking hilarious. That's Manix, I mean that's that's always funny. Um, and then Kurt Russell never really explains why he knows that one of these guys is going to break Daisy out, and it could just be we've established how paranoid he is that he just he doesn't actually know, but he knows. Um, and Samuel Jackson doesn't correct him because Samuel Jackson actually knows that something is fucked right now. Yeah, but here's here's the other thing is that the price was so high on her head, right? Ten ten thousand dollars, and you've come to find out that anyone in Jody's gang, their bounty is above ten thousand dollars. Um, so she has to have been the lowest, right at ten thousand. On top of that. She's a gang and no one knows who she is. Like Samuel Jackson, who's a bounty hunter himself, is like, I don't know who she is. And then uh, Goggins, who's the fucking sheriff, is like, I don't know who she is. But Kurt Russell knows who she is enough to have captured her and want to get her bounty. So he knew she must have been from a gang run by her brother. So maybe if he told them, oh, she's from a gang, then they would be like, putting two and two together and they're like oh that gang the gang that their members are like worth 15,000 a pop you know yeah and, well, and also the different last names although they're very close but what Donner Donnergue Dom Donnergue and then Domingue I, I thought yeah. it was I thought it was odd that Samuel Jackson did not know who she was but know who jo knew who jody was but the fact that like so he killed bob in a little bit and then um later on they're like oh that was marco the mexican he's like oh marco the mexican he's worth 12 and you're like so you you know it makes sense that they know these people by names because you know you see a wanted poster and it's like a fucking crude drawing of what people think <laughs> this guy looks like yeah yeah well on top of that it's just like 
maybe they have a disguise. You know what I mean? Like, um, I'm sure Tim Roth's character doesn't always fucking grow his beard like that, you know? Right. Well, Kurt Russell always has to have his like that, at least nowadays. (laughs) How could a bounty hunter just go around and take the guns off of normal people? Like, you're not a cop. So it's like, what? I don't really understand how you... Like, how is that, you know, how is that not a crime? The hangman tells Samuel Jackson if he kills that guy, like, oh, you're committing a crime. But how are you just allowed to go up to a person at gunpoint and knife point and just be like, you have to give me your gun? And then he destroys them and throws them down the well. Uh, down the toilet. Um, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, the shitter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. But maybe the tensions were so high, like, they just let him because they didn't want to shoot out to, like, ensue. In, in um the other thing too is that I love like this is always we're we're red herringed into believing that the other guy is the other guy, right? Cuz not at one single point are we ever to believe that they're all in on it. So when they go up to um uh Joe Gage and it's very difficult to get his gun from him, but then when they go up to Oswaldo, it he just gives it up very easily. So it almost makes you think like, oh, he's okay. But yeah, so I just, I like that kind of uh, dynamic. Well, and they do, all these guys seem actually so loyal to Jody and Daisy that they would sacrifice themselves just for those two, right? And so... But why? It's it's weird because like when when Tatum and and Jennifer are finally united and they're they're face to face and they're having this like sweet brother and sister moment uh michael michelson is like giving like a nice little sweet little grin like yeah you guys did it it's just like why are they it's like a brotherhood it's not even a gang it's like they're all in it equally it's weird yeah, it does feel like we're almost supposed to sympathize with these people a little bit. Like, you're supposed to sympathize with, but it's impossible, right? You can't sympathize with Daisy, for sure. She's just, like, a bitch the whole time, a racist, and then just, like, <laughs> all these people were killed for no reason. Um, what's funny, too, uh, getting back to it, Walton Goggins, uh, Mannix, immediately knows that the Lincoln letter's a lie and, like, brings it up at the dinner table, and he's like, you think some guy with a yellow stripe kicked out of the the army has a Lincoln letter? Um, he just he just saves that for like ultimate embarrassment at the table. I even like it that he sits right next to Samuel L. Jackson, but then he moves on the other side of Tim Roth when he goes to expose him. Like he doesn't want to be near him. And I was wondering for a while, like why did he get up? And then sit back down away from him. And it's like, oh, because he's he's about to be an asshole towards him. But the thing is, Samuel Jackson doesn't even take it hard. He Kurt Russell's the one that takes it, you know, the worst and kind of gets racist about it. And like all you, he goes all you people on him. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, too. Oh, sorry, real quick. I was just thinking about who the good guys and who the bad guys are. But it's really a how a matter of how racist they are helps you as the audience sympathize with them right like in the beginning kurt russell was like the least racist so it's like okay so he's a good guy and then she was super racist and so was goggins it's like okay they're antagonist of the thing right and then 
as you go on, they do this like thing where they divide the haberdashery by the north and the and the south. So you're like, it's very clear who's good and who's bad at that point, right? That's what he wants you to think. But then as it as it formulates, you know, sides are switched and it's not what you think it is. If you look at it where you take the racism out of this story, like their thoughts about it, it's just a brother and sister wanting to be reunited. And these assholes who have captured them and who are making it like incredibly difficult um, for them to be together, like flip it around and they're the villains. The only thing that really makes you feel different about it is chapter five, where it shows you innocently killing all of those people in cold blood, you know? Well, you also know that Daisy's a murderer from the very beginning, right? Yeah, but maybe it was justified. Like, you don't know the details justified. of it, right? Maybe it was justified. Um, They're yeah, all murderers. So, outside of OB, no one in that cabin for the first four chapters is a good person. Like, Samuel Jackson is the closest, but as sure. you're about to talk to, like, talk about that scene where he gets... Bruce Stern to shoot at him was like, listen, Bruce Stern is not a good character, right? He is a bad person in this. That was fucking hard for me to watch. Like, just, I don't know what about it. Like, just him explaining the way he killed and fucking kind of tortured his son, which, by the way, I don't think was real. Um, I think he probably killed the son, but I don't know that he did the rest of that. I think he really just wanted him to to pick up that pistol. <laughs> I, I, I find it funny, though. <laughs> that he goes right from Kurt Russell kind of getting all racist on him at the table. He immediately gets up and goes over to the general like, I'm mad, so now I'm just going to get this guy to shoot him, like pull a gun so I can fucking kill him. <laughs> like, I'm in a mood. Right, right. Um, I I don't know, man. That that scene was... I, I had no sympathy for Bruce Dern, so I didn't give a shit how he felt. Uh, I just... It was hard for me to listen to uh, Jackson go into very intimate detail about that. whole. I mean, he basically raped the dude. And uh, yeah, I think that's just always a hard pill to swallow. Wow. Really? Yeah. Okay, nice. Very good. Uh, set, set that up in the beginning. Um, I love Goggins through that whole scene. He's like, no, General, he's just trying to talk you up. He's just he trying just, to. He just done heard tell that your boy was in Wyoming. That's all. I like I like your Southern hillbilly accent goes into like almost like 1930s Mickey Mouse cartoonish. Hi, you guys. Hi, you guys. I'm just from the hills, you know. Um, I'm surprised Goggins didn't step in more. And then also he seemed to get over that pretty quickly. <laughs> like immediately in the next chapter, he's putting on the dead general's coat. He's like. Well, and that that kind of just goes to show you that that character is just like an opportunist, right? Like, yeah, he was he was big on the Confederacy, and he's like talking about, oh, we should move the capital here and here. But then he's like, all right, shit's over, let's move on. I'll be the sheriff of a town in Wyoming. Like, he's just a dude who's trying to keep it moving. You know what's funny too is like maybe he thought he was well numbered in the coach when he's talking, you know, when he's all talking politics and such, right? But because he's like, you know, I'm a white dude. Kurt Russell's a white dude. Daisy's a white chick. You know, I, I, I obviously have my numbers here. And then when he realizes like this ain't that kind of audience, then he really started to back down. Right. Um, 
so the next scene, chapter four, Domergue's got a secret. The narration is done by Quentin Tarantino. Who else would you have wanted to do this narration besides him? If you could have, let's say anyone from the QT universe. Okay, okay. That's a good, that's a good limitation. Um, so, whew. <laughs> I think Bruce Willis. <laughs> Bruce Willis, really. I think Bruce Willis is a good a good choice. I also think, um, no, that wouldn't have worked. I was gonna say maybe, you know who he could have had? He could have had Robert Rodriguez, kind of bringing a little little Rodriguez in there, you know. <laughs> you should have just had Bob do it in the fake Mexican accent. Bob. Bob, Mexican Bob. Oh, Mexican Bob, and the yeah. I mean, at that point, just have Antonio Banderas show up in your in your movie as the narrator. Um, the guy who plays Bill, that would have also been a good. Uh, David Carradine. David Carradine would have been a good narrator. Yeah. I don't know if he was still alive at this time, but yeah, he would have. Oh really? Um, I didn't realize it was Quentin Tarantino's voice. Wow, I should have. He has a very distinctive voice. Yeah, he was trying to put some on. Who poisoned the coffee? Do you think? Oh, it was it... it was Joe Gage, yeah. Right. Well, actually, it was Quentin Tarantino's hands that did it. <laughs> but, you know, Joe Gage admits to it. I don't really... It could have been any of them. But, yeah, I do believe he was probably just telling the truth. Although, maybe he thought... You know, he seems to want to sacrifice himself later. And maybe he's like, I'm kind of the least important, whatever. I'll sacrifice myself. Um, it would be it would be cool to get a backstory on the uh, Domingue gang, you know, just like all these guys. Like, does Joe Gage actually have a mother? You know, <laughs> you're so so worried about that. Uh, I also I also think the this like the stage production, I guess, like the the notes basically on how to get her in and out of the handcuffs for these scenes, right? Like, so they get her, she gets out of the handcuffs because Kurt Russell's like, oh, you know, whatever, we're stuck here for a while. And then she's like, can I play the guitar? And then he lets her play the guitar. And I think the song's really beautiful. She's got a pretty good voice. And then he doesn't like her second verse of the song where she's basically like telling him that he's going to fucking die. And so he handcuffs her again. And like, at that moment, I was like, oh man, you actually might have survived this if you hadn't have been a bitch. And just kept your fucking mouth shut because you wouldn't have been handcuffed to him when yeah. all the shit went down. You would have had a much better chance of escaping. Yeah. But no, you ha- you had to do it. I-, I will say, though, like when she says, uh, you know, when you get to hell, tell him Daisy sent you. And I was like, that is it's pretty fucking harsh. But like, it was good. I love how he's like, music time's over and just smashes the guitar. <laughs> So do you know, I read something crazy about that fucking guitar. Oh, that okay. Is an, that is a very valuable antique guitar from like 1870. And it was loaned to the movie and they made six replicas to destroy. But someone didn't tell Kurt Russell. And before they could stop him, he fucking destroyed the real guitar. <laughs> no. Yeah. And the, the people that loaned it were like, we will never loan another instrument. <laughs> Which, I was looking at the budget of this movie, I was like, how is this so high? And I was like, maybe they had to fucking pay for that fucking guitar that he just The insurance destroyed. must have been through the roof. Yeah. Oh my god. 
that's the best thing I've ever heard. I will say too, I didn't notice how beautiful the song was the first time because I was paying attention to the coffee in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did obviously the second time. And Walton Goggins' reaction to the coffee is so fucking funny. He's like about to take a sip, and then he Kurt just Russell throws spits. it. Well, he's still holding it this whole time. He's like about to take a sip. He sees fucking Kurt Russell spew and then he sees ob spew and die and he's still holding it near his face and kurt russell's like it's the coffee and he like yeah throws it like it's like acid he's like oh god (laughs) yeah yeah and i i I like his reasoning towards the end why he's like and you saw the person put the poison in the coffee and you saw me pour myself a cup of coffee and no one was going to tell me that, so fuck all of you. <laughs> Which they couldn't tell him, but yeah, <laughs> I get him being mad. Um, and she actually pulls his gun off and shoots Kurt Russell like three times. And then fucking Samuel Jackson walks over there. And I, I there's some good lines from uh, from Samuel Jackson right here where he's like, all right, everyone get on the wall. And he's like, he points his gun at Joe Gage. He's like, get or don't get Joe Gage. And he's like, I'm getting. And then he goes, then get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. And then how he uh, immediately told Goggins to like come over here and take his uh, the gun off his belt because he knew he was telling the he's truth. Like, you finally believe I'm the sheriff. He's like, I don't know about all that, but I know you almost drank that coffee. <laughs> yeah. So next we get him going in basically on Bob because he's like, Bob's the one I know is a bad guy. And all the explanation, he talks about Minnie Stew and then he finds the blood on the chair. Well, the only thing that's like preventing him is, and I love this kind of reveal to us, I guess, as the audience. This is something Jackson's character already knows. But he's like, I know you're a bad dude. But he's like, but I was playing Silent Night on the piano over there. He's like, oh, yeah, I know. He's like, which means there's at least two bad dudes, maybe even three bad dudes. And I I love that reveal. Well, because he's like, I didn't say you poisoned us, but I just know that you killed many. And he, you know, he shows the blood on the chair and then (laughs) obviously highly offensive. But he's like, do you know what that sign over the bar said? It said no Mexicans or dogs. And she only took it down because she started allowing dogs. Um, um, and then he blows his is, fucking face off. He does. But did you also find it weird that if it is only she only took that sign down because um, she started allowing dogs, she knew Bob was Mexican because he talked to her when he first came into the haberdashery and she didn't make a big deal out of it. Well, he wasn't talking in such a, um, he wasn't, ha- didn't have such an affected accent when he was talking to her and he was mostly hanging out over by Dave. So it wasn't as noticeable, you know, mm. he wasn't wearing just... like a poncho and a sombrero, you know, so, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is the end of four and, uh, we real quick before we get to five, we get it's basically like a nice cliffhanger between four and six, right? Because we get the five as a flashback, the whole thing. But you know, he's like, All right, I'm gonna pour this down her throat if one of you doesn't fucking admit to poisoning it. And then Joe Gage does, 
and then you see, which I didn't recognize Channing Tatum at first, you see Channing Tatum, Tatum under there, and he's like, I'm going to fucking blow off your huevos, and he fucking shoots his balls off, and then that causes the shootout between Oswaldo, who is actually, what, English Pete, and yep. Walton Goggins, and Goggins gets the much better of that. Yeah, and um, I know we talked about the flashback a lot. I don't, I'm, I don't feel necessary that we have to go through it again. Um, but I like how Goggins didn't shoot Joe Gage because he was like he was unarmed, and he's like, I guess I can't shoot him. Um, yeah, th- that does make you like him, or at least like think of him as more of a good person. But I will say. He was asking Samuel Jackson for permission to shoot him, like, not 30 seconds before that. Yeah, I don't know uh, why his change of heart was. He kept looking back and forth between him and Oswaldo, who was on the ground. And uh, I I don't I don't understand that. But the, the thing I really don't understand, and maybe you can help me figure this out, is that, like you said, chapter four to six is a cliffhanger. And the last time we saw everyone, it's like Samuel Jackson was on the ground with his ball shot off. Goggins had a bullet in his leg. Tim Roth had a fucking bullet in his stomach and, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. When we get to chapter six, how does Samuel L. Jackson end up in a bed? Goggins end up in the chair. Tim Roth is on the, is on the recliner and then fucking just how did like, did they all were like, all right, guys, let's take a pause. Let's get comfortable. So like we can proceed with the shootout. I'm just trying to understand how they got in the positions that they got well so and this is something i want to bring up so in the original script channing tatum shoots samuel jackson basically till he's dead and this script actually like got out and for a while quentin tarantino wasn't going to make this movie but then like the cast basically was like you have to fucking make this movie it's so good um because it doesn't why shoot him once in the balls like kill him then Be- but i guess like once he doesn't and once samuel jackson falls and then once he hears the other gunshots he's so worried about his sister but it's like man once you shot you have to follow through until she's safe because it's like you just give up your arms a second later like what what was the thought process of that it like it didn't make sense to me yeah, that that whole section didn't quite make sense to me, but it did make for it being really badass when he got his blame, his brains blown uh, to bits and then they went all over her face. Yeah, yeah. Now, real quick, before we do get to that part, there were a couple things I want to mention from chapter five. So I think it's really well done the way it's all set up, the way it ties together fairly perfectly um i also thought just the 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 idea that this general had just been stuck there for two days waiting on a stagecoach to come get him and minnie obviously doesn't like him because she's black and he's a fucking horrible racist that she's Uh like wants him out of there um that whole thing was just like it's kind of fascinating to think about that you would just have to fucking wait at a a 7-Eleven equivalent for like two days to, to wait for a fucking Uber. Um, you notice that Bob blew out the door uh, and uh, which I was also wondering like how did the, the black guy that was outside, how did he not hear the gunshots to the, decide to then open the door? 
which does, if he didn't hear the gunshots when he was outside, then maybe it makes sense that they didn't actually hear the voices outside when Kurt Russell first came in. Um, but one thing I really noticed is Joe Gage kind of has regret in killing uh, Zoe Bell's character, uh, Judy. Mm-hmm. He like walks over her and she's like kind of tugging at him. He like, he kind of doesn't want to do it almost, which is interesting. Like this little subtle bit because fucking Tim Roth like shoots the black chick off of the ladder and then goes over and immediately like, you know, kills her. And like Joe Gage takes a second with it and it's like, feels bad about even, it. Even before that, when I, I don't know if this was meant to come across this way, but you could see his hesitancy when he was looking out the window at her trying to like grab the suitcases off of the yep. top. Um, but then he looks over at Tim Roth and like winks at him. So I was like, oh, maybe not, you know? Also, uh, Channing Tatum is fucking great in this part. Like the, the scene. 20 steps that he's in. Yeah. Absolutely great. And I love when he's like, he's like, you know, old man, I, how can we trust you? And he, <laughs> the, Dern's like, I don't give a damn about them or you or your sister. And he's like, that is a good answer, old man. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, he also must have been very cold in that basement. I don't understand. Maybe I just don't understand how 19th century haberdashery basements in Wyoming worked, but I feel like he was going to be cold. I don't know, because like the fireplace is right at the floorboards, and like maybe he stood by there, and it looked like he actually was wearing like uh, maybe a blanket or two. So maybe he was okay. Well, he had to be for the you know the story to work um so next we get to the last chapter and yeah as you said they're like they're on a bed and i don't know i feel like there might have been a quick ceasefire like everyone's kind of you know fucked up and fucking (laughs) walton goggins is using a chair as like a as crutches basically to walk around on his bum leg i love uh samuel jackson's complaining he's like damn kid shot my balls off and he's like he turns to goggins he's like i can't feel my ass Yeah, um, that's good. This uh, this is reminiscent of um, of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, did you get that strong feeling where like just everyone dies in the end? Uh, yeah. Although I don't know if Buscemi died in the end of Reservoir Dogs, but um, I do. You know, you got Tim Roth over there with his bullet wounds, like basically like I'm gonna bleed out. He handles it a lot better in this movie than Reservoir Dogs. But yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I did get well, that. Well, not only Tim Roth, but also you have uh, Mickelson, like, at the end, too, and then you have... Um, Who at the end? Uh, Joe Gage. His name... Uh-oh. Is, not, is Michael Madsen. Madsen. Why did I thought... Oh, because the other actor was Mads Mickelson. Who's the other... In what? It, I know the, who Mads is, but... Now I just got their names confused. I didn't okay. I didn't get their characters confused. <laughs> they look like different people. Moving on. Yeah, I was like Hannibal Lecter and uh, this guy. Um no, no, no. But um Okay. So I should just stick to just calling them by the character name. But Joe Gage is also in Reservoir Dogs as one of the last remaining people in that one too. Um yeah, so they all die and they all slowly bleed out. But I love um, just the whole like 
working up to it and and him talking to um daisy about making a deal and then he just fucking faints from blood loss and then it's just like a race to the gun (laughs) and the way she hacks kurt russell's arm off to get to the gun everything's great yeah that is great there's like there's a tense moment where you think goggins okay so like First of all, let's talk about pretty awesome Channing Tatum getting his head blown off. Like, sort of unexpected, but Samuel Jackson is like, I can't let, you know, her start talking or whatever. I just got to kill this guy. There's like, there's too many of them. So blows his her head off. And yeah, as you said, the blood gets all over uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's face. And then they try to start making the deal. And as we talked about earlier, you know, Walton Goggins just wants to hear it, right? He's like... You know, I'm not, she doesn't have anything to sell, but I still want to hear her sales pitch. Um, I think it's great. And, you know, they're offering like, I'm worth this much, I'm worth this much. And then uh, fucking, he's like, well, Marco, you know, Samuel Jackson's trying to save himself. He's like, well, Marco the Mexican ain't worth a peso now that I shot his face off, which is true. Like, how are you, you know, how are they going to prove that this is that guy, right? So, you know, uh pete english pete's like oh well i know i'm gonna die and i'll be worth this amount you know so they're trying to tell him did you this is something that quentin tarantino hasn't answered did you do you think there were 15 men in red rock raid ready to come kill them okay so maybe maybe we can figure this out together because obviously her, Daisy, and, and Joe Gage were trying to buy time. Maybe even Tim Roth was in on it too. Long enough to be distracted. Did you feel like everything that you were saying was a bluff just so that Joe Gage could grab the gun? Because you remember, she's on the ground this whole time. She can see the gun under the table. Right. And then they set the gun up under the table. So they both know the guns on the table, the same table that Joe Gage is currently on. So if she knows about the gun and they know about the gun, maybe they were just bluffing until he could find the time to grab and shoot them uh, with the gun. So with that knowledge, now do you think there were 15 people in Red Rock? Oh, I don't know. But I mean, also, they're probably getting trying to get Chris to shoot him so that then Joe Gage could shoot Chris. I, I probably don't think there were 15. I mean, that seems like a lot for a gang, but maybe maybe there was. Um, They don't mention it at all in part five. You feel like it might have come up like come up like, oh, hey, we have we sent those other guys. Right. You know, there are backup plan in in the end. Right. When. When he's about to go into the basement, Channing Tatum's like, hey, be patient. We have two days to make this work. You think that he might have been like, hey, we have two days to make this work. And if it doesn't, we'll get her in Red Rock with our other guys, right? So, I don't know. To me, that kind of means it's it's bullshit. But I, I do think they're just trying to f- convince Chris so that he would shoot Samuel Jackson. And then once Jackson's down, they could just fucking kill him, right? That's probably the play there. I, I like uh, when before when Tatum's walk coming up, he throws up his one gun. They're like, throw up your other. He's like, I don't have another. And Samuel Jackson's like, you better shit another pistol in two seconds or we're going to kill her. Yeah, Um. well, 
Okay, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to say it. I don't think there were 15 guys because of the gun under the table. And I thought it was just a, a bluff. That's good. I'm glad you got there. We are both there now. Um, so Samuel Jackson uh, is kind of getting worried about Walton Goggins and what he's going to do. So he just starts killing people, right? Yep. He shoots Oswaldo Pete in the stomach. And then at the same time, Joe Gage pulls his gun out. Um, and Joe Gage is fucking horrible, right? Like he has the jump on these guys and they both put a bullet in him before he can get a shot off. Yeah. Like, well, I shit. thought he got he got a shot off, but he missed. That's no, actually, no, you're you're right. It was it was Tim Roth when he was up against the wall. He got a shot off um, and hit Goggins in the leg and then he got another shot off and it missed him. Right. Right. Yeah. So I was I was starting to worry about Mannix, but, with you know, and Samuel Jackson was, too. But like. He, it was funny. He was just being truthful the whole time. He just wanted to like, it almost feels like he just wanted to give her hope and, you know, she could give her sales pitch and then he could just tell her, he goes, no deal tramp. And then she's like, well, you're about to die. And he's like, I guess I should be plum scared right now, but I'm not because that means I, you know, I'd have to believe in those 15 uh, other guys, which I don't. And, and what's funny too is Samuel Jackson right after this is like, you know, we have the whole tense scene where, Goggins passes out, and then you think, oh, she's going to be able to save herself, but Goggins shoots her, right? Samuel Jackson then is like, we have to hang her. We can't shoot her. That's too good for her, and we're going to die anyway, which is another right. reason. They don't they don't have to give a shit about these 15 dudes. Let's just fuck over these people that basically have killed us. I mean, yeah. As it's it, His back and forth on this is much the same as like Goggins not shooting... Um, Joe Gage after asking Samuel Jackson to shoot Joe Gage and then he has this like actually the chance to do it and he doesn't do it it's just like Samuel Jackson's like gonna shoot her in the head but the only reason he doesn't do it is because his gun gives out and then he's like oh you know what we can't do that we gotta hang her it's like okay dude that's not what you definitely not what you were thinking five seconds ago well yeah but he was five seconds ago he wanted to shoot her because he didn't trust Mannix and he was like I need to make the decision for him and kill all these people. That's why he was like earlier going to do it because he's oh, like, oh, okay, yeah. That makes he's sense. like, I don't know what this guy's going to do, but once they're all dead, he'll come to his senses. Um, that's also like the worst way to be hung, right? Because normally when you hang, you the the thing comes out from under you and your neck snaps. Most people die not from strangulation, but from their neck snapping. The slow pull up of her means she had to suffer the entire time so it's like a much worse death for her yeah um yeah and i, I love I, his it, uh goggins is like this is my first and last action as <laughs> sheriff of red rock yeah also you see the arm uh kurt russell's arm hanging off of her and the ending too is perfect he reads the entire lincoln letter which we have not heard this whole time but then at the end he says old mary todd is calling he's like that's a nice touch and he's like i know <laughs> yeah yeah and that's that's when i knew for sure it was it was a fake letter (laughs) well that's that's good that you figured it out in the end i um i also you know the other day i was talking about how all of his movie endings are satisfying right and it's like he created these perfect characters where like all the evil people were killed in ways that they should be 
And then, you know, these good guys in quotation mark, they died too, but they aren't without their faults. And so it's like, we're not too sad about it, right? Like, so I think it, it's kind of a, a great ending. And, and the last thing I want to bring up, you know, I talked about how this is, movie is so much like the thing. Um, and Quentin Tarantino even said it was like, he said it was like his way of working through his thoughts on the movie, the thing, which I think is cool. Um, so Morricone is the, uh, the person who did the score for this movie. And he did the score for like the good, the bad and the ugly and a fucking ton of movies. He also did the score for the thing and took some of the unused score from the thing and put it in this movie, which is like just so fucking full circle. This movie is really fucking good. And I like, you know, all of his movies are great. And so, I mean, that's not a shock to uh, anyone who has seen his movies that, or has heard us talk that we'd be like, Quentin Tarantino, pretty fucking good. So uh, I'm glad we did it. I, yeah, I mean, I am too. I, I would like your, I think I know what your top five Quentin movies are. And I know you don't want to go through all, all of them. So can you give me your bottom five? He's done nine movies. I guess Four Rooms would be his tenth, um, even though he doesn't count it as his tenth. So Four Rooms is last. Still, huh? Yeah. I mean, what am I going to put below it? What would you, you could put, put below? Four? You could put Grindhouse. I, but I don't. Grindhouse, second to last. So that's Damn. number nine. Um, Blasphemous to some. Reservoir Dogs is in the bottom five, but only because... I mean, so my top three are in this order, Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pulp Fiction. Those are my top three. Interesting. Django's an interesting one where to put it, right? So I probably have Django above Hateful Eight. It's a much more satisfying movie seeing all these like racist slave owners and, and um, you know, getting getting killed. Which, obviously, I always forget Walton Goggins is in that, too, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, he is. So, yeah, I don't know where Django would go, but I, I love that one. Kill Bill? Is Kill Bill's one movie, right? Or is it two, you know? Uh, I, I don't think know. you have to treat them as two. That's a rough ranking of, you know, that's it's a little bit of, you know, where, where I'm at. So, I, I have my bottom two and my top three. So, the middle five is 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 tough for me. All right, all right. I mean, for me, I think uh, number one has to be Reservoir Dogs. I just fucking love that movie so much. Um, and Django is definitely up there, but it's... I also really, I mean, love Pulp Fiction. I, it just sounds to me like you are more of a fan of like newer Tarantino a little bit more than I am a fan of... Uh, and and I'm a fan of older Tarantino a little bit more than you. I've chosen but, his second, his second, sixth, and last movie are my top three. So those are like a pretty even spread over his career. Um, I love Four Rooms. I think it's endearing. So it's definitely not in my bottom. I think it it has to be like dead center for me. Jackie Brown probably has to be uh, pretty low for me. I think Grindhouse has to be last, then Jackie Brown. And until I rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, is low for me, too. It's fucking crazy. 
fucking crazy I know. talk. I'm insane. I'm crazy. Well, that's great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan. And this is David, and I have finally watched The Hateful Eight. <laughs>